0: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Elsewhere Podcast. My name is Ian Ditchburn, and I'm very excited to welcome you today to our very first field recording in another country. I'm recording today in San Cristobal, in the mountain state of Chiapas, Mexico. I'm sitting in an abandoned, hostile common room. It's about 8.50 p.m. this Tuesday, February 22nd. And I'm guessing that everyone else in the hostel has better things to do on a, on a weekday night, but I don't. So I figured I would take advantage and, uh, and seize the abandoned space to record for this episode, the part two of my conversation with Amir Guinea. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, why the hell are you here? It says part two in the description. You should probably go back and listen to part one. But to give you a a brief reminder, my guest Amir is somebody who left his home of Iran at 15 years old with the desire to emigrate basically anywhere else. And that journey led him first to Malaysia, where he spent several years and eventually ended up in Malay prison for a brief period. But at the end of our episode, Amir was waiting on a beach, a beach in Indonesia Waiting to be smuggled to Australia. So that's where we left off. We're going to lead in today with a song by one of my best friends, Adrian Rigby, who is currently also backpacking. He is somewhere in Portugal right now. And this is a song that is the result of a collaboration with an artist collective he met on Madeira Island off the coast of Morocco. This song is called Hot Sun, Cool Touch. Thank you. Right, Amir. Thanks for coming back. You're welcome. Yes, I'm happy to be here. And uh, a lot has happened since our last episode. Uh, you got trapped behind the mudslides in Kelowna, and I got COVID, along with half of the people I know. In other words, the world is trying to kill us, but uh, nothing could keep us apart. So <laughs> I'm glad you're out here with me. Absolutely.
1: First of all, congratulations for getting COVID. You have uh, extra layers of protection on you right now with all the antibodies that you have. Exactly.
0: So when we last left off, you were on a beach uh, waiting for a boat in Indonesia. Could you describe what the mood was with the people there? So we get dropped off
1: after a scary and adventurous ride. We had been on a van for at least about... 18, 20 hours roaming around the country. Where we're heading, we don't really know. Where we are right now, we don't know. I'm not sure if I mentioned about the last part of our drop-off. We got stopped in the city, somewhere in Indonesia. And they took us out, out of those vans and... They put us in smaller vehicles. They separated us into two to three groups. And this guy who's helping says, this is a fucking stupid idea. You guys all could have been caught. We don't do it this way. So it looks like the mafia or the smugglers are dividing into two or three different groups at this point. And this particular group of people who are telling me that this is a stupid fucking idea knows something. He has been stung before and he realized that, yes, you may be able to save a lot of money, putting a lot of people in one van, but the stakes are high. There is more chances of you getting caught. So he prepared three different cars. He put us in three different cars, separated. 10 or 15 of us made us to five groups of fives. And the car that we got in, we really don't know what the fuck's happening right now. Where we are being taken? Are these people actually smugglers? Or are they traffickers? Or are they police? Or maybe they are secret agents? We have no fucking clue. Until it reaches to a part. That things are getting really sketchy. We are separated from the rest of the group. They are not following the other cars. We are totally driving by ourselves with this group of uh, second smugglers that they are taking us and roaming us around. And they took us on this service road type of thing. Just a gravel road. It's getting really dark. We are probably out of nowhere. And I turned to my buddies and I said, look, I have some strange feelings that could be wrong, but this thing does not feel right. I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that, I should, that we should be prepared. And I put my hand on the door handle ready to open the door and jump out of the vehicle and run away. And in 10, 15 seconds, they stopped the car. And Then I heard other people and I can hear other languages. Then I was like, oh, thank God. It looks like we are reunited with the rest of the group. So we are in this beach side of some sea. We don't know where we are. We're definitely still in Indonesia. And as far as my understanding and the rest of the group goes, is that we will be getting on a boat from here. But there is no docking point. There is no ports. There is no docking platforms or anything. And it's really dark. But the sky is quite dark and beautiful but it's going to get even better from here. And while we we're waiting, I can hear some people that what a stupid idiots you are. And then we find out two of the guys in our team have set up bonfire somewhere at the corner of a beach that you're we supposed to be undercover hidden and just quietly getting on a boat. So somebody went and put down the fire. And then we learned that they were trying to make charcoals and um, set up their hookah and smoke some hookah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I can't blame them for wanting to have some creature comforts if they're uh, maybe they're having the same thoughts you are. If we're about to be sold into slavery. Also, they had a hookah? I thought they got told to, to leave all of their, their unnecessary possessions behind. But I suppose for some, a hookah... Is uh, is is high on the list of necessary artifacts. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I imagine the smugglers weren't too amused with that.
1: No, they were pissed off, and I could totally understand that. Somewhere that you do not want to leave any trace. there shouldn't be any trace. So yeah, that that was
0: that was a stupid idea. Did they get, uh, did they put the fire out immediately? Did they smack them around a little bit or were they pretty, <laughs> just a- I'm, angry?
1: I'm pretty surprised that they didn't, they didn't get killed. But yeah, the, the fire was put out right away. And I believe they got to smoke their hookah. So
0: pe- people emigrate for a big variety of reasons. Did you find with the people that you were on that beach with, was, was there a real common thread between those stories
1: at that point, it was it was very early to know stories of people, why they're there. What's the reason behind this crazy idea of this journey? But following the news and reading a lot about the refugee lives and why they are fleeing their countries and where they want to go and why they want to go there, you could hold a pretty good grasp on the whole story and where these people are coming from and why they're here. Because I had lived overseas for quite a while and I had known how to distinguish languages and slangs and where these people are from, I could tell that there were Iraqis, there were Kurdish people, uh, there were Syrians. I could hear some... Ahwazi people, who are the Arab ethnicities that live in Iran, and so on. And by knowing that, you can tell the reasons they are fleeing, being a refugee. However, this whole thing was just the beginning of my understanding. And later on, I would have found out that I had no clue that there is such a thing As this refugee claim and that refugee story, that I found out how much of an ignorant and um, not knowing a lot of things,
0: despite knowing a lot of things, I was. And when the boat finally showed up, what was that moment like?
1: Well, so they pretty much gathered us all up in about 30 minutes or so. And when they gathered us all, the, the boat itself wasn't there. They brought these uh, dinghies. They're these smaller engine boats. And uh, they put five at a time on board. And it will take off from the beach and uh, move towards the actual boat that we are supposed to get on and leave. The beginning was pretty um, unpleasant. Because just right off the bat, after I got on that dinghy, I started feeling extremely nauseous. And I started vomiting my guts out. Just on the dinghy? Just on the dinghy. Oh, and no. I had no idea how worse it's going to get. So they they rode the boats, uh, the dinghies, for about 15, 20 minutes. And then we arrived... I I can see a light moving up and down in the middle of the ocean. And by the movement of that light, I can tell that it's not a big boat. But then when we get closer and I see the actual boat, I freak out because that boat was pretty much a piece of wood. Every time one person held on to it to hop in that boat would move so much and that was insane i mean who the fuck would want to get on that boat to make a journey to australia and go through the indian ocean so my second best reaction is that calm down this is the boat that's gonna take us To the actual boat, maybe they have layers of transportation that you come in a van and then they put you on these dinghies and it uh, takes you over to the small boat and then the small boat will take you to the bigger cruise ships or freight ship or <laughs> yeah. I, I was expecting with, you know, paying seven grand to the smugglers, I'm gonna get a ticket on a cruise ship and then they're gonna serve me a caviar and uh, smoked salmon on the way to Australia and then I can seek asylum.
0: I love the optimism.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm quite optimist I'm I'm quite an optimist person. I I'm very sure about that. But I wasn't that optimist. I was thinking that as a freight ship or, you know, some sort of a bigger boat. Yeah. But this was not the case.
0: How many people were you?
1: I believe we were 85. And that included women, children, newborns, elderlies, young men.
0: So it was a mixture of us. Uh, So looking at a map, Indonesia puts you right over either West Australia or Northern Territory. Did you have any idea where you were supposed to end up?
1: I had no clue where we were set aside, where we are going to. Typically from Indonesia, there are only two routes that takes you to Australia. There is a route that goes for about seven to eight days. It's the safest route because there are a lot of islands on your way to australia and later on i will hear a lot of crazy stories about that route but i kind of know that the route that we are about to take is not that one so the route that goes for seven to eight days sometimes 12 days is the safest route and you have the islands on your way uh, is longer but it's safer The route that we are about to take is the route that is about three nights, four days. It's the shorter route, but it's also the craziest and the most dangerous route. But it's shorter. So we are taking that route. The reason that it's the most dangerous and craziest route is because there are absolutely no islands in front of you. You are basically on the way to Christmas Island and between you and Christmas Island is just deep, dark blue oceans with crazy, humongous waves as tall as a 30 story, 50 story building on a piece of wood, on a piece of wood. We have no clue where we are exactly. Indonesia to Christmas Island is the route we are taking. And also Christmas Island is still an island, but it's an Australian territory. Whereas if you take the route, the longer route, which is seven to eight days or 12 days, you land in Darwin, Northern Territory of Australia.
0: Were you aware at the time that Christmas Island is being used as a refugee detention center?
1: Yes, we we're fully aware of that and we knew that the the main purpose of making christmas island as a detention center was because a lot of people during 10 15 20 30 40 years of the history of seeking asylum in australia would use that route and they would end up on christmas island so instead of bringing people from Christmas Island to the mainland, they had decided to build up a refugee detention center or asylum seeker detention center in there to just facilitate people and have a facility
0: there. So it was a tried and true method at, the, at that moment in history. Um, but as we'll sort of discuss, uh, expectations didn't really match up with reality. Um, up until that point, had you spent much time on the ocean? I had been on the ocean in the past, but
1: nowhere close to what I'm going to be experiencing.
0: Yeah. And how were the conditions?
1: Well, imagine being on a piece of wood in the Indian Ocean, and uh, we are speaking about thousands and thousands of kilometers or miles of deep, dark blue water. And it's an open water. There are so many sea creatures in there, um, especially sharks. And the routes that we are taking is known for its high, strong waves. And it's known for thousands of people losing their lives and being drowned on those rickety uh, smuggler boats. On that boat, we were given a bunch of packets of dates, um, a couple of gallons of water, dried bread, and I believe that was it. That's everything. 85 people on a rickety boat, and we are just sailing for Christmas Island. At first, we were given also... A satellite phone that was that used I used to call them Thorea. and then we had a GPS that GPS was supposed to give us the coordinates and also pretty much give us the lead to Christmas Island. The satellite phone was given to one of the asylum seekers to charge it in their phone while we were spending our times in a hotel in Jakarta before departing. Apparently the 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 satellite phone was charged, but at some point when we realized that we need to call for help, the Thuria was pretty much out of battery and charged. Let like maybe like one and a half bar or maybe half a bar was left on it, and we realized that the same person who was given the phone to charge the phone had given the phone to his kid. And because the the kid, his daughter was crying and having a tantrum, he gave the phone to her to play a game on that phone to keep her quiet.
0: I imagine that was pretty frustrating. Um, And at that point you were experiencing a bit of emergency. Was this when the boat had started to sink?
1: That's correct. So the, when when we needed the satellite phone, it was pretty much the fourth day. And we had already been on on the ocean for about three nights. We had run out of food. We had run out of fuel almost. And the bigger problem in here was that our uh, water pump which is used in most uh, boats to pump the excess water leaking into the boat, had broken. That, uh, but the bigger issue in here was that the engine itself had given up as well. The boat was full with seawater, and it had reached to a level that everyone in the basement of the boat or the, or the downstairs of the boat, they had to evacuate and come upstairs on a deck. We were out food, water, supplies, fuel. And we just pretty much sat down and waiting for some miracle. And if there is a miracle, it, it needs to happen right now. Because we are, we, our hopes are on the satellite phone. And we need to make a phone call. And when we, we looked at the GPS and it says like Christmas Isle is in 300 kilometers or 200 kilometers, something like that. It's it's getting close. Our navigator looks at the GPS and is like, "I'm tired of this GPS. It's not showing me anything properly." And he threw it in the in the water.
0: Was this one of the smugglers or was this one no? Of the it, this, this
1: guy was one of our one of the asylum seekers, one of our boatmates. He threw the GPS in the water. And I wanted to stab myself. Not him? (laughs) No, I wanted to stab myself. And then we asked for the satellite phone and they bring the satellite phone. We look at it. No one can figure it out. And then I, I take a look at it. And the moment that I am pretty confident every time that it comes to technical issues and fixing something, I said, these people are idiots. First, this guy just threw the GPS in the water and now they are having no clue where we are, Like, who gave this guy the GPS and what the hell is going on. At least I can take a look at the satellite phone and now they can't figure out, they can't make a call. So I took the satellite phone and when I looked at it, it was like almost like half a bar. It was, and then it started blinking and then the satellite phone turned itself off. And that was the moment I literally wanted to stab myself in the head.
0: <laughs> Better than drowning to death, I guess. Uh, were there any smugglers on board the ship with you guys? I doubt it. Very
1: unlikely, highly unlikely that there was any.
0: So they just give you the equipment. They drive you out on the dinghies. They hand the phone to someone and they say, good luck. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And the, the, the thing is, there. are there is a boat captain. There was an Indonesian man and his son or brother or buddy. Was this, this man around his late 40s. And then he's got this other kid with him. So they were the captain and, the, and, his, and his assistant. They are from Indonesia. They were, they, he, there was a driver for the boat and this guy had done it many times. Interestingly enough, he also offered me to take his uh, contact information for future smuggling cases that I can <laughs> <laughs> make some business with him. Uh, so, yeah, this guy is a captain. And he hasn't been sleeping for the past three nights. He's been up for three consecutive nights. And I don't know how he's, how he keeps going. And he—he's almost dying.
0: So you're sitting in front of me right now. So clearly the situation resolved itself without you stabbing yourself in the head. How did uh, how did you make it to Australia?
1: That's very true. I'm sitting in front of you, and I sometimes do have uh, I well I used to have this problem before in the past that I wouldn't be able to realize that I am here. I'm like, where am I? I couldn't. When I was arriving here in Canada, I couldn't believe it. But three nights underwater, four days. It's the fourth day. There's no GPS Our navigator through it in the water. The satellite phone is dead because someone decided to give it to his kid. And she just uh, blew through the battery of it. We have no food, no supplies, and we are done. The best thing in here that we can do is to sit down and pray. But we are not praying for rescue. We are praying for a peaceful death and forgiveness for all the so-called sins that we have committed in our lives. And it's quite interesting and funny that all the convertees from, let's say, one religion to another one or the infidels or... The ones who did not believe in any religions or gods or agnostics are now praying to all the gods that they've ever heard on this planet, including their previous religions. And it's a very sad moment. I'm thinking about my parents. That is the first thing that comes to mind. I am not really worried. Because this is the decision that I had made. So I wasn't feeling guilty or I wasn't regretting it. Because, well, I had taken the bet on my life that I will, it's pretty much a 50-50% chance of whether me making it or drowning. Because it has happened in the past so many times. And I had taken that chance. But I'm not upset about that, or I'm not even afraid. The only thing that I'm thinking a lot is, what is ha- going to happen when they tell my parents that they have found my body, or they haven't even found my body because there are there are thousands of people that their bodies were never found and they didn't even know they made it, they didn't make it, and they just went missing. It would be really hard on them. It will be very. It will be the most devastating news that they will ever receive.
0: Did your family know that you were taking this ship?
1: Yes, I I had fully disclosed to my parents. And my dad tried to talk me out of it. My mom tried to talk me out of it. But I still said that I'm going to go ahead and do it. Because I think this is my only chance out of the crazy life that was roaming around me and I had no way of
0: going back home
1: and I had no way of staying in a place that I was. So I was left with no options pretty much. Mm -hmm.
0: And so sitting out on that boat, praying to every God that you can conjure in your mind. uh, What was it uh, in the end that saved you guys?
1: Well, a seagull. Uh, while we are praying, and there, some people are crying and praying to all the gods. Then I see the seagull that flew by, and I was like, Oh, look at that, it's a seagull. And they're like, So what? I said, That means there's a dry land somewhere in here. They're like, No, dude, seagulls can fly for thousands of kilometers. I'm like, No, I, I disagree, and I will not accept that. They can fly for thousands of miles. But I didn't tell them this. I was just thinking to myself. And then next thing was a plane flew over us. And that was a plane from the Australian military. And the next thing was the Australian warship. I think it was HMAS that I used to tell Australians it's called Hamas. They (laughs) hated it and yeah would get quite furious i'm like that's how you named it it's called hmas and it's hamas they hated it so then the warship came and they sent someone from the ship at first they were going they were saying go back go back don't come here i was like dude good luck sending us back there's no way our our boat is dead uh, go back can you tow us yeah can you tow <laughs> us you're dead in the yeah, water you're dead in the water um yeah so they rescued they sent someone to the to the boat that we had and then uh, magically the the engine of the boat started itself again and then we were just maybe like five six kilometers away from christmas island and then we, we slowly started seeing the tip of the island. And then our boat actually took us all the way and made itself all the way to Christmas Island.
0: Um, so when did you first realize that your, your entry into Australia wasn't exactly going to plan? Our boat got intercepted. We are all being tagged.
1: They searched our boat bags and body and they took all their our properties away from us and they brought a minibus we all jumped on a minibus and then they sent an immigration officer on board and they said hey if there is anyone in here with a valid Australian visa just put your hands up I'm like uh, I don't I think we forgot our passports and visas we left it in the airport sorry <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he he basically said that, okay, he left the bus. Then they took us to a facility on Christmas Island. That was mixed mix of families and adult male and female and singles and kids and everyone mixed together. We had dinner there and they gave us phones to make phone calls. We called our parents and some of the guys, their parents did where they couldn't reach their phone. So, I gave their num- their numbers to my mom and then told my mom to call all these people and say, say that your son's alive, uh, which was a good and a not good plan to do, but it was mostly good to do because their parents were dying when they heard that their son has made it to a safe, solid land. They were happy. And then they gathered us all up after dinner time and then, an immigration officer announced that uh, we have made it to Australia without a visa. And because we have done this without a documentation, uh, he is going to detain us. And they handed us a paper and they named our boat. Our boat was called Eldridge. They named our
0: boat Eldridge. I don't know why. That's like H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. Do you know H.P. Lovecraft? No, it's I don't like know a- that. A horror author. Yeah. That's, Interesting. Yeah. Eldritch. Eldritch is the name of like the old evil gods that are sort of terrorizing humanity in the H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft mythos. <laughs> so not exactly the nicest name to give you guys. Yeah. I, I had no clue about the ones Eldritch. that you said.
1: Because when I looked it's up. It's a cool word. It's a cool. When I looked up Eldritch, I, I came across a, a, an old... Navy ship or something like that. That's what I came across but again that didn't really stick for the whole time anyways they um, shortened it to EDE and that's what became our boat mate. Um, I think our boat was like 428 boat number 428 so 428th boat that had ever made it to Australia and then they gave it a boat ID, which was Eldridge, and then shortened it to E-D-E. And then we each had a number. And mine was 39. So I was E-D-E 39. And then we were taught that from now on, we have to go by this number. We we won't know anything about you and your name. We will only respond to you when you
0: put your number. Very uh, depersonalized Sort of way of interacting with you guys do you remember feeling like that was sort of strange at the time because your plan was to seek asylum and instead they're giving you a prison number
1: yeah that's pretty much when we arrived I including many others were like oh fuck we made it and it's all over it's over it's done we are away from harm we are away from imprisonment we are away from torture we are away from all the shitty things that are supposed to happen to us in our countries and we are safe now but we were not we were about to experience some of the most horrific things that we've ever experienced in our lives worse than what Probably could have happened in our in our home countries, probably because I had never been into prison for the amount of time that I was going to be in Australia, the country that is apparently carrying one of the Western freedom flags in the whole world and just bragging about building bridges for crabs so that they don't get squished by cars. And now they are destroying human lives and detaining people who are asking for uh, protection.
0: So what did the the Australian military tell you was going to happen next? So
1: basically, we were off the hands of Australian military and Navy. Then we were handed to the Australian Immigration Department and the Australian Immigration Department had contracted this company that was called Serco, S-E-R-C-O. And Serco was in charge of all the prisons in Australia. And I believe they are a contractor in the UK as well. So Serco was going to take care of the detention facility. We were then, the next day, moved into a different compound. The compounds that we were moved to were designed for single adult male. And they were, their security level were higher and they were a completely different facility. The centers were painted white, blue, green, red. And... Based on the level of your behavior, that's how it was supposed to, but they didn't really follow those. But then they put us in these compounds. We were sent to green compound. And then each compound had like green one and two, red one and two, blue one and two, white one and two. So we were sent to green. We then were gathered. There There were signs like paper information printed, they basically were saying that you will not be resettled in Australia. You won't be given asylum in here. And then after about two weeks or so, they gathered us all up. And then these two circle officers, which one of them was Russian, and uh, he still had his accent, and he was he just gathered us all up. And he said basically that we are not going to be going to Australia. They are going to send us to Papua New Guinea, or Nauru, and at first he said PNG, and I said, "What is that? Is that a gas or liquid? What type of thing is that?" It was like, "No, PNG stands for Papua New Guinea," and that was the first time in my life ever that I heard about Papua New Guinea. So from there, uh, some of us started going on hunger strikes, and that was the first strike we started. Didn't last for even a day, by by dinner time everyone was eating <laughs> <laughs> uh, including myself. And that was the beginning of the messaging. You will never go to Australia. You'll be sent to Papua New Guinea. If you're found to be refugee, even if you are found to be refugee, you stay there and you'll get resettled there. They they sent two people per detainee. And we were escorted, they held our hands, and they put us on a plane, and we were kissed goodbye to the island of
0: menace in Papua New Guinea. So looking back at what you know now, why do you think this happened? Why
1: they sent us to
0: Papua New Guinea was because
1: we arrived on Christmas Island On 4th of August, on July 19th, the Australian Labor Government, uh, led by Kevin Rudd, declared that from now on, whoever arrives in Australia will be sent to the island of Papua New Guinea, Manus Island in Papua New Guinea and Nauru. The thing is, it was the end of his round of power in, in 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 his party election time was coming and australia is known for having a lot of debate and controversy when it came to boat people boat people were is and will be one of the most debated controversy in the australian politics If people were in favor of it, they will loosen the ropes and the roads and let people come by the boat. If people were against it, they will stop it. It was always the case of using those people in their own favor when it came to politics. Election was the most important part. Whoever, based on attacking both people, wins the election is going to decide how to deal with this and things were terrifying because a lot of people in Australia hated both people and uh, there were, there were good reasons that they did because it was just a mess. How the Australian government had taken care about it in the past 10, 20, 30 years.
0: Mm-hmm. So the decision for you to end up in Papua New Guinea it sounds like it was more of a a political football situation which you were sadly caught in the middle of. Um absolutely no doubt about it. It's it was a political decision. So just so people understand, Papua New Guinea is its own country. How is it exactly that Australia is running detention camps on a sovereign nation?
1: Great question. Papua New Guinea is called the independent state of Papua New Guinea. So Papua New Guinea used to be Queensland. It used to be part of Australia. And even till this date, the Papua New Guinea's constitution is a copy paste of Queensland constitution from 1979, if I'm not mistaken, That's when they got uh, their independence. Well, I call it the so-called independence. And Papua New Guinea is is called by a lot of um, politicians and, if I'm not mistaken, anthropologists as well, is a failed state. So as Nauru. Nauru and Papua New Guinea, both of them, used to be part of Australia. Nauru, till this date, still uses Australian dollar as their currency. They don't even have their currency of own. They are very corrupt countries. Their constitution absolutely sucks. Although uh, although Papua New Guinea has a freedom chart of rights, which Australia doesn't really, I think, in their constitution. But again, they got it because they didn't have any and they had to Pretty much copy and paste the UNACR Charter of Rights in their Constitution and Freedom of Liberty. But then again, because these countries are so poor and falling apart, when Australia gave them independence, they were all there they were always dependent on Australia. Whether it came to legal aids or food or supplies and natural disasters happening. And we were sent to a naval base that was owned by Australia. It was an Australian naval base, but it was in Papua New Guinea territory. So in better ways of describing it, it was pretty much the Guantanamo of the Pacific.
0: Yeah, that's a great example because in the same way that Guantanamo Bay is in Cuba, Not exactly the closest allies of the United States, and yet they're running a military prison there. It just sort of goes to show that national barriers don't always work the way you'd think they would. And uh, to your point, I went down a bit of a, a rabbit hole looking up Manus Island, and I ended up on the Wikipedia page for the current Papua New Guinea prime ministers. They're all listed as having their monarch be Queen Elizabeth. So in some way, they're kind of politically under the dominion of, I guess, the Commonwealth or Australia. So yeah, that all that all tracks. I just figured we would explain for the listeners who might be a, a little confused about why that would be happening. So Google reviews of Manus Island range from five-star reviews praising it as a vacation destination and the occasional comment pointing out that since 2013... Manus has become one of Australia's gulags in the Pacific. How is your treatment there? Google
1: reviews, one of the most interesting aspects of our day-to-day life. I want to go to this restaurant. Let, look, let's look up their Google reviews. I want to go to Manus Island. Let's look up their Google reviews. You would never choose that place as a vacation
0: destination if you look up the Google reviews. Apparently, some people are. There are like photos of people like drinking on the beach.
1: Yes, there are. There are those unique uh, people who do that, and I don't blame them because it's not Papua New Guinea's fault. Papua New Guinea has a very corrupt political system, and it's not even a developing nation. Papua New Guinea is part of the Commonwealth. Uh, their queen, their their monarch, is Queen Elizabeth II. They're still being told how to live, how to do things, how to well, I wish they were they, they could have done better by like if you're telling them what to do, at least tell them the right way, not the way that you desire in a corrupt way, because uh the the average life expectancy in Papua New Guinea is fifty-five years. And if you look up and say what's the unemployment rate in Papua New Guinea, it says unemployment rate is three point five, which is not correct it's anyone in Papua New Guinea who's fishing is considered as employed so it's pretty much the other way around so employment rate is 3.5 it's a 80 percent of the population still live in sweltering jungles that do not even have roads to the rest of the capital there is only one or two provinces that have roads together connected I could be actually wrong and like no provinces has roads. If you want to go to any of the provinces, you have to fly there. And most of the cities, then you have to fly again. There are no roads built in that country. It's a very wild, dangerous place. But in the meantime, it has one of the loveliest people that I've ever met in my life. And and I say it's wild and dangerous because medical care does not literally doesn't exist there. And a simple malaria can kill you, or shark, or sea accident, jellyfish, anything. You you get sick, you need to have a very good immune system to survive, or you die. Unless you live in the capital, Port Moresby. But going back to the point of how Australia does that is basically, you let us do whatever we want in your country, and in return, we'll help you with medical aids, financial aids, and disasters that can happen in your country. Definitely not a best place to be detained. It's one of the most beautiful places on this planet if you're going there for snorkeling, scuba diving, and just enjoying some wild nature. It's brilliant. It has just been turned into a black site that there is no journalist access. It, it's just out of sight, out of mind. That was the whole intention of the Australian government.
0: So after your time spent imprisoned in Malaysia, how did it feel to be back in detention?
1: Well, it, it's not even comparable because the the amount of time that I was in prison in Malaysia, I think like 14 days, 13 days, it was really bad. The Malaysian prison was really bad. It was designed for criminals and but speaking about the detention centre in Papua New Guinea, let's talk about the detention centre in Australia. It was clean. You had showers, you have you had toilets, you had it was clean. It was a clean prison. But again, it doesn't matter. You are you're locked up. Your liberty and your freedom is taken away from you. Doesn't matter how clean and nice it is. Then it comes to psychological warfare that they play on you by the way that guards treat you and there are so many things that it simply can't have so that drives you crazy and this brings me back to the thoughts of it doesn't matter where you live on this planet you decide the hell and the heaven of your your life it doesn't matter where you live you could be in the worst country on this planet or you could be in the best country on this planet the best example on that is my friends in Papua New Guinea that they have been offered resettlement in the United States of America and they have rejected it They have been offered resettlement in some of the European countries and even Australia. They have rejected it. They want to live there. There are people, asylum seekers, that they are truly happy in Papua New Guinea. They live in some of the most remotest places on this planet, in Papua New Guinea. But they're happy. I don't think I have that happiness here in Vancouver. But it was quite fascinating and mind-blowing that someone who I heard the name, I could exactly remember who this person was. He would go on and on every single day that he would never, ever accept resettlement in Papua New Guinea. This is a place that is falling apart. Their people are dying every day. They don't have nothing. And this is insane that they have even thought about resettlement in Papua New Guinea. And that same person has rejected multiple offers from the United States of America, Australia, and some European countries. He has a happy life in Papua New Guinea, in one of the most remotest villages. And that's just mind-blowing. There are handful, maybe more than a handful, that they have married there. They have kids. I know one who has even adopted Papua New Guinea kids. He has married this woman in Papua New Guinea, and he has adopted kids that he felt desperate for them because of their crazy life. And he has adopted them as, as his own kids. That's that's just nothing that I can ever believe about these particular characters that I know. These are the characters that were first world life, English music, sitting in my car, downtown New York. These people are... It just doesn't make sense to me. But I'm talking to them. I see them. I see the picture of their wife, their kids, and the place that they live. And it's just mind-blowing. But then going back to the prison style, the the Papua New Guinea prison, well, the detention center run by the Australian government on Manus Island was a lot better than the one in Malaysia. The facilities were, yes, chicken pooks that we lived in. But it was better than sleeping on concretes in Malaysian prison. But again, at the end of the day, it was a prison. And I personally believe the only reason that I survived Papua New Guinea and the detention center on Manus Island is because of these groups of men that would sit together every single night and just talk just sit down in big circles and talk. And I believe that was one of the main reasons that a lot of us survived. What kind of stuff would you guys talk about? We would talk shit. We would talk about a lot of shit, anything being racist, then correcting ourselves and then calling each other out and say, that's not the way that we should talk about other nationalities Talking about drugs, talking about alcohol, talking about women, talking about genders, talking about sexuality, talking shit about the entire planet and the people in the detention center and ourselves.
0: But we just fucking talked about everything. Did you have any means to communicate with the outside world? At first, we were given phone cards. We had
1: like about five hours a week that we could talk to our parents. Then we had internet. We started using internet, but our internet was heavily monitored. We couldn't access a lot of websites. Of course, the websites that I mean is pornography websites. That's what we all needed at the time.
0: (laughs) And uh, And they blocked him.
1: And they blocked him. I was like, oh, man,
0: come on. It seems like the recipe for some assault to happen in prison. Yeah.
1: I was like, dude, come on. Like, why would you block pornography? Just let us have it. And then we found our ways around it. We bypassed at some point the entire network in the prison. And we would access a lot of things. We would download the shit out of the internet. There was no consequences. The Australian guards would bring us tons of downloaded videos. It was a dome of no consequence. You couldn't sue anyone. You couldn't do anything. People were getting killed in there and getting beaten up and nothing would happen to it. Set aside copyright bullshit in there. And that was how we communicated. Then after the first lighter was smuggled in the center, we realized that there could be way bigger stuff that can be smuggled in the center.
0: Hmm. Well, I definitely want to talk about that, but let's circle back for a sec. You, you mentioned that people were getting killed in there. How was that happening? Was that disputes among the asylum seekers or was that abuse from the guards? We, I, I would
1: say certainly that one of the first things happens, like, I remember even on Christmas Island, we started having fights and quarrels and physical fights. And I remember circle officers. There was this woman who came and uh, she was the head of the security facility. And she came and said, we don't tolerate stuff like that in here. Just going to let you know about it. I was like, okay, you're not tolerating fights here. No problem. And fights would happen. It's prison. People fight. And, and, especially you're putting together a bunch of single adult male they're not all of them single but it was just like and some get the testosterone boosted and some had a bad day some are pissed off because they're not going to go to Australia and especially it started when we we all get bad news and fights will happen but then we realized that it's really stupid to fight with each other and we like everybody became buddies but every now and then you get fights But people dying, the first time that someone died was when we protested. And then the center was stormed and the gate was broken by... They say it was broken, but it was actually opened by the Australian guards. Um, They let people in, Australian guards, New Zealanders and locals as well. They came in and they bashed someone in the head and threw a rock on his head and they killed him Um, there's some good evidence out there that says this guy was killed by a New Zealander and and an Australian guy and it was even more proven when they flew them out out of the island in less than 24 hours so they don't get questioned by police but then out of blue they brought these two
0: local guards that they were charged for the murder of the detainee. Let's talk about the guards for a minute, because I think that's a possibly an interesting aspect to this. Were they mostly Australians?
1: The guards were mostly Australians. I would say 70 to 80% of them. There were a lot of New Zealanders, a good chunk of them. And then there were guards from other parts of the world as well, but in very small numbers. I can recall maybe a couple of Americans, one Canadian. There's a good number of them from UK. Uh, yeah, from all over the place. You, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and it's quite interesting that Welsh guys didn't like to be called British; they hated it. So we had from all over the world, but right. majority of them were Australians.
0: And what were they like as people in terms of their treatment of you? Did they seem to have much empathy for your situation? Ultimately, their choice
1: of guards was to choose former military personnels that had fought in Iraq and Afghanistan because those people were more secure in terms of keeping secrets and being brutal and not disclosing any information out to the public and media because a lot of whistleblowers came out of the police, gu- police officers and other guards and they had disclosed some horrifying facts about the, the life in, on Manus Island and the Australian government was getting into trouble.
0: And I imagine these veterans from Iraq, Afghanistan had a particular way of viewing brown people. Did you find that a lot of those former military guards brought over prejudice they had received during the war in their treatment of you guys?
1: Absolutely. That is one of the best point outs that you made during this whole conversation because I learned the word sand nigger from those folks in there. However, I... Throughout my storytellings and all the works that I've done, I believe there is nothing better than maintaining integrity. The only way that this story can go out is through honesty and just telling exactly what happened. There were good guards amongst them as well. Those guards, the movies, TV shows, and the pornography that we couldn't get it from the internet came from some of the guards that they were also Ex military personnel, but in the meantime, there were some that were absolutely like hating us. And if they had the power, I had heard from numerous uh, sources and even first hand account that if they had the power and they had the tools, they would have murdered every single one of us. In the meantime, I had also personally came across a guard who was one of those people who wanted to absolutely not leave a single live person on that island that changed 180 degrees Mm -hmm. He told me that he had no idea what kind of people are living on these islands what he had learned from the media and what he had been told was not that what he had experienced on the island Fast forward for this guard who used to hate us and had an actual fight with myself. He saved a detainee's life on a soccer field after he had a cardiac cardiac arrest. He had first aid and he saved this guy who was dying and he was fired. They sent him home with the first flight.
0: I think it says a lot that they would get fired for something like that when I'm sure that there were probably other guards there who had very different attitudes towards you folks and treated you very differently. It's interesting that, you know, on a kind of systematic level, being trapped in a detention center and being trapped in a military barracks is not necessarily too dissimilar. You're both there under the pretense of some sort of greater governing situation. Conditions for people living in the military, especially overseas, generally not so great. So it's interesting that some of them were able to break through their sort of preconceived notions and break through their racism. So how long were you there for? So I was on Manus Island for about four years and a half, Was there any way to make money while you were there? Did they have jobs you could do to earn some kind of income? So we
1: weren't allowed to work, but we could participate in activities. Every week we would receive 25 points automatically. And if we participate in activities, we will receive 25 extra points. For example... One or two points per activity during the week. And the maximum we could receive was 50 points per week. And that meant we could use those points in the canteen to buy stuff. That basically meant I could get a packet of cigarette for five points. Perhaps the first most valuable currency on the island was smokes. So... I personally would have rather collected the cigarettes and trade them for money or cash so that I could buy other stuff smuggled from outside the center.
0: During our pre-interview, you mentioned marijuana in the camp. And earlier, you mentioned some uh, some smuggling situations that were happening on in the detention center. Uh, how was that being run and how would you necessarily pay for it? I guess cigarettes generally... Yeah, the, well, the best
1: way to trade marijuana was smokes. The guards wouldn't even bother looking at your cash. They wanted smokes. So we would go behind the uh, facilities uh, fences at night because the facility was guarded from inside and outside. And then mostly they would put locals outside the facilities. So they would bring marijuana with them we would go behind the fences. They would throw, let's say, three, four, five grams of weed wrapped in aluminum foil. We would open it up, smell it, look at it. We like the size. We like the smell. It's a good one. We would throw back a packet of cigarette for them. And that's how our business was. And that's how we used to do with a lot of other things. Then there is some stuff that we couldn't throw it because it was fragile or they couldn't throw it so we had our other ways of well putting it in this particular place and then the guard will come and collect it collect the cigarettes and leave the electronics or other devices there or under the exterior fence or going for medication which was in a different location there they wouldn't search the guards because they're not inside the actual facilities so we would carry our smokes there at night and then swap for phones mp3 players or um
0: credit for our phones and etc so the guards were helping to run the the smuggling
1: there yeah the the p mostly the png papua new guinean guards would run the smuggling um not not really any of the other guards they weren't interested in the business they they wouldn't uh sacrifice their paychecks that comes every two weeks for that Mm -hmm. they were they would they would rather bring things for free, which they did. A lot of case managers, a lot of welfare officers, a lot of guards, like even those ex-former military guards. Some of them were dope-ass cool people. They they had, they had were like, yeah, I've killed many people in Iraq and Afghanistan, but I just did it because, you know, I was sent there and I opted for it. But there was nothing to do with me hating the people in there. And I believe they would go to heaven as well. Because they were fighting for their country. And when some of them were very interesting characters. And then he came like you guys are powerless. Everything is taken away from you. I have so many liberties. And I earn a fuck ton of money out of this place. Buying a headset. An mp3 player. Or some of them even buying an iPad tablet. Or a, a mobile phone. They would do it. They were happy to do it. And they would just. Bring for us, and also there were guards that they thought if they do that, they would keep us quiet, so we don't protest, so that this facility keeps going forever and ever, so that they can keep the job in there. So it was that too.
0: So, did you have any nice times or any um, any memorable moments inside the detention center?
1: So, so first time ever smoking marijuana was in the center and i believe it was mostly i was sitting with a bunch of guys and they were smoking it in there and that's how i got exposed to it and i was walking with a buddy of mine i remember walking i don't remember exactly what happened but i just remember walking and we were walking towards the mess and he's telling me and i'm and i just turned back and i said hey why the fuck aren't we getting there it's been like for ages that we've been walking and it's like welcome to stage one time goes slow and i was like fuck are people gonna find out and realize that we are high i think people are looking at us like welcome to stage three being paranoid and thinking everybody's looking at you so that one was quite an experience but then it was not something that i liked and i realized that it's not a great thing for my body my body rejects it doesn't like it i cannot control the train of my thoughts i am not me and i don't really like that i want to be me uh, even when it comes to drinking i'm i have been drinking less and less and less and less recently Because I am already high on life. Weed is just taking that away from me. And I tend to start vomiting my guts out. When I get high, I can't control my thoughts. I get nauseous. I vomit. I throw up. And I feel like I'm dying. I remember that night I told my buddy to bring a pen and paper and write down my will.
0: I was so high that I thought I'm going to die. And you were probably not in a great place to try smoking weed for the first time, imprisoned against your will. With many drugs, they say set and setting. Both of those things would understandably be pretty off where you were having that experience. Um, (laughs) Do you still have your will?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I don't think he wrote down my will. He was like, oh, buddy, you're going to be fine. Just just go to sleep. You're going to be fine when you wake up tomorrow. And I remember I was high for the next three days. When I woke up, I was still out of whack.
0: Mm. So at this point, what did the people running Manus Island, what did they want from you? Did they want to keep you there indefinitely? What would be their ideal outcome from this situation?
1: they wanted us well the, the messaging was that that you'll be here indefinitely that at some point they came and said look we don't have any plans even papua new guinea cuz we we're like you know what fuck it process us give us the refugee status and we'll we'll get resettled here in papua new guinea no problem we will get resettled we you, you said papua new guinea our country is not safe for us papua new guinea maybe which is doesn't really look like it, but fuck, man, we're tired of this detention. We want to get resettled. Fuck it. Process us and we'll live here. And then they came and said, you know what? We don't have any plans. There is no resettlement protocols or policies in place for Papua. We, we can't, like, n- this is not going to happen. Like, then what's the plan? They're like, well, we don't have any plans. You're going to be here indefinitely unless you want to go home. So they started giving us money, like three thousand, then five thousand, then ten thousand, then fifteen thousand, and it went all the way up to twenty-five, thirty-five. And I heard some people got like fifty grand to go home. If you wanted to go home, they would give you a lot of fucking money. But the thing is, that wasn't the solution. Yes, there are some people who could go back, situation changed back home, the circumstances are different now. Um, but a lot of people they couldn't go back home there was no way they could go back home they would get killed like i personally couldn't bribe anyone that i knew that wanted to get rid of me with that 50 grand 30 grand no way fuck you we're gonna kill you so that didn't work and then the other thing is the australian government wasn't having a candid conversation with us almost never they always used situations in different places and different setups for their own advantage and they were using this situation for politics they won the first election because they had the slogan of i'm gonna fuck these people vote people up they won the second election because they had almost stopped the boats. The The facilities on Manus and Nauru didn't really stop the boats. It was the turnbacks. They went on the sea and they would turn the boats back. They wouldn't let them come. And even the ones who made it to Australia or, or Darwin, they would put them on unsinkable boats and they would remotely from camera drive it and it would land in the shore of Indonesia and then the door would open and then they would, you know, get out of it. That's how they stopped the boats. And people liked it. So they won the second row. And then I believe like at the end of my stay in there, they won not even the, the third row of election as well. They won back to back because of Manus Island, because of Nauru. They weren't stupid to stop it. I'm sure they're going to still use the slogan, which they have right now for the coming election in Australia.
0: Maybe we could talk about the riots, which I believe were 2014. So pretty shortly after you got there. Um, was there a specific incident that set everything off? In
1: 2014, I believe it was the first formal uh, gathering and information session held by the Australian government. I remember they brought this Papua New Guinean, poor Papua New Guinean guy that had no idea which department he works for. And he had a letter and he held up and he said, my name is, reading it off the paper, and I am the immigration officer. And there was this Australian immigration woman who was sitting in there and telling him basically what to say and what not to say. And he said that, yeah, there is no plan in place. There is we don't resettle people here. If you don't go back home, you're gonna be in here for three, five, maybe more than that, and indefinitely. There is no plan in place. So we got pissed off and we uh, we protested. And the the government use the media the australian media which is run by the uh, rupert murdoch and they tell you what they want you to hear they basically said they rioted we protested and then we were attacked we received thousands of rocks from outside over our head and i was like we're not gonna fucking stand and watch you we'll beat the shit out of you too we will protect ourselves Who were throwing the rocks? Locals, Australians, New Zealand, like all the people who worked there, most of them, and then mostly locals. There were coral rocks coming like fucking hail over our heads. And then they broke into the center and then they beat the shit out of hundreds of people. They shot someone in the butt. one got blinded. He lost his left, left or right
0: eyes. And this was in response to you guys protesting, just protesting, just protesting, um, being being mad about why there is no resettlement
1: in place. In, in, in place. What well, you said, you're going to resettle us in Papua New Guinea? Sure. Just but why don't you process us and resettle us in Papua New Guinea? Yeah. Then we'll find our ways to a next country. You know, we'll put another boat together and then <laughs> seek asylum somewhere else. But they, they weren't doing. They wanted to keep us there. The Austrian government needed us. And we realized that they are using us as a political pawn uh, or a bargaining chip with countries or people or other parties. And we were pissed off. So we we protested and then they turned the lights off and they came in and they bashed people to death. And then they killed, the first person was killed in that night, the night of the so-called riot.
0: It's funny how... Very often, I think we saw this in the George Floyd situation as well, how a lot of peaceful protests will turn into riots because of law enforcement. The police come in, start bashing heads, and that's when a crowd begins to get violent that probably wouldn't have been otherwise. What was happening with you during this time?
1: Well, you see, to be honest, when, let's, let's even call it a riot, why is that riot happening in the first place? Let's not say it was a protest. Let's say it was, a, it was a riot from people in George Floyd or any other situations. Why was there a riot? Because you did this as a government and that's, that's the consequence of it. You locked us up. We sought asylum. We sought protection. You lock us up and you're clearly using us for your own favor in election and your platform, that's your only standing platform to win election. And you're spreading false information and news and declaring us as terrorists and country shoppers and queue jumpers and anything that you think your readers will click on those clickbaits that you have on the news articles. And your media is corrupt. is run by Rupert Murdoch. And he's the one who's running 80% of the media pretty much on this planet and feeds you with what he or his corporation wants. Of course, people are going to get pissed. You kill a black man, black people who are facing injustice for th- hundreds of years. And then you go and create war and instability stability in the Middle Eastern countries. Of course, those people are going to want to flee their countries and go i I talked to so many iraqis and they're like americans are in our country 24 7 and they have raped our kids and women and they have taken our place they have destroyed you know those people don't have homes to live anymore Mm -hmm. it's none of your fucking business to go and solve a problem in the first place it's and then we we found out years after that Weapons of mass destruction never existed. What was the war in Iraq for? It was the war of oil. What was the war in Afghanistan? It was the war on, on opium. You went there for the oil. You went to Afghanistan for the opium. You created war. You created thousands of proxy wars. You've created instability. And these people are coming to your country because you signed the UNHCR 1951 convention to give refuge to people because of the benefits that you get from UNHCR. And now you want the benefits from UNHCR and also you don't want these people and their trouble. And also you want to go invade their countries. But you're having the cake. You're having it and you're putting it in a collection. That's not how it works. And you are using these people as a political pawn and a bargaining chip, they have minds and brains. They can understand. And we were pissed off and we protested. And yeah, we we got frustrated. We, were, we got furious. And then when rocks came, we were like, you know what? Fuck you. That was when we started taking poles out of the ground. We broke fences. We took the poles that we got from the fences. We bashed the guardhouse. We destroyed the telephone booth. We destroyed the mass, and we broke fences. Yeah, you, it, it's a wild place. It's a dome of no consequence. You, you're getting bashed, for you're not gonna stand and look, and you know, have your arms crossed your chest and say, "Yeah, sorry, just come and hit me in the in the head with a rock." No, people defended themselves, and they got hit. They hit people too. But did many of the guards really get injured or hit as many as ours got? Not really. They they had the power. They had the fences as, as their defense. They had shields. They had buttons. They had, they had so many other gear that they used. And they killed one. They injured 85 severely. I saw open skulls. I saw slit throat. I saw blind eyes, I saw person, people being shot and it was, it it was a disaster just because you want to use this situation in your own favor for an upcoming election.
0: I think you brought up a really important point with the idea that the refugee crisis did not emerge from nothing. It emerges from the decisions of these powerful countries to destabilize other parts of the world to their economic benefit. So in a lot of senses, the poverty of the Middle East is profiting these countries, which then obviously, these are the only nice places to go in the world now. Of course, people are going to leave the place that we pillaged. It's just this horribly... Ironic and ignorant stance. You know, I feel like a lot of people who aren't, who, who don't really educate themselves on global history, assume that while poverty exists, Canada is rich because we are good, industrious people, and poor people are going to try and come here because they're poor. Why are these people poor? Had certain decisions not been made in the last 50, 100 years, we wouldn't have this situation. I'm sure had you, been in a situation where the Shah had never been installed in Iran by the United States, you may not have left because it would have been easy for you to get a visa to go somewhere else and you could have traveled freely. People want to stay where they're from, if they can. But we've created a world that is unbearable, and we wonder why people can't bear it. So... Did much change in the camps after the riots?
1: Well, there was a there was a period of lockdown. Food was served in pre-packed small portions with trash in it. But then good things started happening. That was when they decided that they need to get rid of the prison guards former prison or correctional facility officers. And then they brought police officers, former police officers. We are dealing with people that are civilians in society. They're coming from society. So we need to have police officers so that they can deal quote unquote or so-called better with these folks. So things got better. Food situation got extremely better. Um, Treatment got better. They started responding to our complaints, written complaints that they never bothered to look at. They started bringing more recreational, uh, building recreational facilities, excursions, just simple fucking activities. We didn't have any activities that we could just spend our time on it. Like not a proper English class. English classes were like in this Oven shaped huge metal tunnel that was boiling hot in 35 to almost 40 degrees Celsius every single fucking day. It's tropic. It's a fucking hot and humid place. And they had like 50 to 80 students packed in a small metal tunnel shaped that is like an oven, but with humans in it. But they changed it. They they built better facilities. They created better classing systems. They brought teachers. They brought more humane characters to actually help people and not wanting to exploit and abuse them because they were powerless and helpless. So that helped, but things changed again. Things went shitty again.
0: So is that why you ended up participating in another hunger strike?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So this time... Things got shittier, and we're getting bad news. Then we find out that there is actually no resettlement plan for any of us. Doesn't matter if it's going to be Papua New Guinea or anywhere. They're just offering huge chunks of money for us to go back. Now it's like $25,000. We're like, we don't want the money. And most of the people who could go back and their circumstances had changed. They are gone back. Now we are left with a bunch of people who can't
0: you mentioned iranians being a big force in the community there because of the fact that many of you couldn't return
1: yeah so majority of the detainees were were iranian and the system used to call us the bullies of the center that iranians are the bullies and yeah we had we were the majority we we held more power and there were some bullies, but again, we had people in a in a community that were like, fuck, you can't do this. We are all the fucking same in here. There was a, so there was a good amount of fairness. We had people who would be like, doesn't matter. We are the most, we got to tell people what to do and what not to do. No, we, we weren't telling people what to do and what not to do. Uh, but we, we had some pretty good cultural exchange in, in the community. By the time that I was leaving, 60% of the other uh, nationalities could understand a good chunk of Persian. And there were I, I witnessed people, locals in the town on Manos fighting and swearing at each other in Persian. <laughs> that was really funny and ridiculous. What happened was we realized that there is no end in sight. And I personally said, you know what, I'm done with this. I am going on a hunger strike. But I'm going on a hunger strike to pretty much die. I, I'm not looking forward to anything. If they save me to Australia or uh, uh, give me an answer for a good country, a reasonable country, great. If not, then I'm not going to eat until I die. I'm tired of this shit. So I started a hunger strike and ended up 300 people following me. And it went to a mass hunger strike. It got big. We wrote letters to all over the planet to politicians, to comedians, actors, actresses. and I remember writing a letter to Russell Brand and he responded it with a video and it's like, this is a shitty thing that Australia is doing and nobody's talking about it. And Australian guards made fun of him that he's like, none of his business. He's a comedian. He's, he's a British comedian. It's none of his business. He's no one. He's nobody. I was like, he's got a big
0: platform. He's going to screw you. Yeah, says the person profiting off your imprisonment. Says the exactly, pre- so exactly, and get exactly.
1: fucked. <laughs> and get fucked. Um, then we wrote to White House, White House, Obama, Obama, to Pope Francis, Pope Francis, to Queen Elizabeth. We were writing to anyone. Like we are, like we have all the time on this planet. Let's write to everyone. Not really. People didn't really care at the time, like I think White House wrote back to us and was like, "Oh, you know we will nothing really happened, but then I was on hunger strike for about two weeks, no food. I was drinking water. then the third week, I decided I'm not gonna drink water as well. so I cut water midweek. I was just like unconscious, like half dead. They broke into the center, the guards and all those former military personnel. And then they arrested, they they so-called arrested us because of manipulating and uh, forcing others to go on hunger strike against their will. Australian former military personnel in Wilson Guard security uniform came and arrested detainees on Manus Island because of doing something wrong. Police didn't come and arrest us. Australian former military personnel came and arrested us. They put us in buses. They sent us to solitary confinement. It was a place designed to psychologically fuck you up outside the center, out of reach. No one could hear you. They had done crazy things to people in there that we had heard about and no one can hear you. No one can help you. And then from there, they transferred us to the uh, main prison facility in the town without going to court, without any official charges. And we were in prison there for about 14, 15, 20 days, something like that. I don't remember. Probably 14 days, the same as in Malaysian prison. It was very similar to the Malaysian prison, actually. We slept on concrete. There was no bedding or nothing. We were fed with all the expired food. Then they said we are lucky because the plan to send us to the actual prison in the capital, Port Moresby, did not work out. So they brought us back to the solitary confinement and they brought us back to the camp and to the detention facility. But
0: this time they changed our compound. You mentioned solitary confinement. And I've read that in the absence of any stimulation, your brain will invent all sorts of sounds and images. So I'm wondering, what was it like inside your head at that time? In the solitary confinement?
1: It was well, it was a facility that was that was designed in a very different way than any solitary confinement that you can picture in your brain. It's a um, the design was a very very strangely designed. It was designed to torment you psychologically. There wasn't anything in my... I, I was just acting to be mentally suffered from all their behavior on me. I can exactly remember. I was acting. I was pretending that I, am, I have gone psycho in that solitary confinement area. And I wasn't acting like I'm psycho. I was just like not talking to them. I had a sheet over my head, and I was having my own moments in there. But it was pretty disturbing how they just like dragged us. And now that we're even away from, there's less eyes that can witness this. They dragged us and they pushed us, and they said that you're gonna have to eat. You have to eat food. You don't eat food, we'll shove it in your mouth and your buddies in the detention are so happy that you're away now because they said you were forcing them to eat. And then they had gone and told them the exact opposite. They're saying that the exact same thing, that your buddies are so happy to be away from you because now they can eat. And then they, my buddies in the prison, they felt betrayed. They sent me to Oscar compound. I used to live in Foxford compound. Now I was in Oscar. They had told them that this guy is a spy for immigration so that there's a good number of haters in there. Nobody wanted to give me a place to live in that that compound. So I was like almost homeless in that compound, homeless within a detention facility. What a ridiculous status. But somebody felt pity and then gave me a place and then they realized that I'm not a spy. And then I lived there for a bit. It was air conditioned. That was the best thing about it. Whereas the compound that I was in didn't have air conditioning, but it was smaller, and the coral um, p- powder or the the sand that coral sand that they used for the ground in there was so white and bright that would just kill your eyes. Um, having no sunglasses was an absolute torture. So after they transferred me there, I was like tired, man. I was like, this is, I'm done with this place. I want to get out of here. And that was when I decided to smuggle a phone in the center and then smuggle its battery and then smuggle a SIM card and then smuggle credits for it. Got in contact with news and media and did journalism, did interviews, and then I found some resources. And I said, there, it's, it's, it's impossible that there is no way for me out of here. So I started writing to any country that I could, and I felt it would be safe and reasonable. I didn't hear from any of them except two Scandinavians, if I'm not mistaken. It was like Norway and Denmark. They got back to me and they said, yeah, we'll be more than happy to help you. But you need to reach yourself to our borders. And I was like, great. I'm going to go learn how to swim from Manus Island to Scandinavians. So that wasn't a good idea. It didn't work out because um, during learning how to swim to Scandinavia, I pulled one of my muscles and I gave up on it. <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> darn it. Then uh, I came across Canada and then I was like, I... Let's see. And then I learned that there's a privately sponsored ship uh, plan that you can get through. And I found someone. And then the journey of my applying for Canada started right there. So how did you eventually get off the island? So I was just browsing on the internet and not just browsing. And I had list of shit on my list to do need to get out of here. What's the plan? These are the things that I can think about. And this is what I can do. So I was browsing and looking at all the options. And I found out about this Facebook page. And I came across this person. And I said, hey, I know you have this committee and this program. This is me. This is my story. This person said, I can help you. No problem. Um, I said, I will pay you. I will do anything you need. And they're like, no, nothing. No money, nothing. I just need one thing. I need a Canadian who can call me and vouch for you that you're a real person. I was like, man, how do I go and fucking find a Canadian now? So one day I was going to bed. And then before going to bed, I remembered like, damn, I know a Canadian. I met this woman on the island. who was a nurse, vaccination nurse, Chelsea. So I didn't have any contact information from Chelsea, though. But I tracked back and then I did a bit of a contact tracing. I found out that I have a buddy who used to work in the medical facility who is probably a friend with her. They are all buddies and got in contact with him. He gave me the number. I, call, I, I said, can I have a contact number from Chelsea? And he gave me email. So I emailed Chelsea and said, hey, Chelsea, it's Amir. And now a friend in need is a friend indeed. I really need your help, but it's just a phone call. Could you do this for me? And she's like, of course, I'm more than happy to do that. And then she got her entire family involved in that. She found sponsors and she did paperwork and all the paperwork that I sent her, she delivered. And I was like, you didn't have, like, none of these. You just had to talk to this person and they would have taken care of it. And those people did take care of it as well. But she got her entire family involved and then... 24 months took for my process, but it wasn't going anywhere until uh, a member of parliament from here. Jenny Kwan went to the parliament and she talked to the immigration minister. And then basically the Canadian government got involved head to head with the Australian government and said, He's a Canadian permanent resident now. If you don't let him out, there's going to be political consequences for you, baby. And then less than 24 hours, they came to my compound. They dragged me out. They put me on a flight the next day and they flew me to the Port Moresby capital of Papua New Guinea. I did my medical checks and I hopped on a flight on my way to BBC. Beautiful... British Columbia.
0: That's funny. Uh, Jenny Kwan is actually the MP in the district that you're sitting in right now. I have voted for Jenny Kwan many times over the last couple of elections, and I will continue to vote for Jenny Kwan. So what was it like arriving in Canada after spending five years in prison? I couldn't believe it for months. And
1: I was just shocked i couldn't believe this i pinched myself a million times for the next first two or three months i was like is this true am i here is this real am i dreaming and even when they were opening the door in the airplane i was like oh i think they're gonna send me back there's gonna be there's gotta be some sort of problem in there but it did not i arrived they let me in and then when i arrived the the immigration officer is the it was the most uh, fascinating part when he stamped my permanent residency paper he was like welcome home i was like fuck none of the people in my country has ever told me welcome home ever in my life and now this random different race from me in this different country who has never ever met me in my life and i am the first time coming to this country, told me, welcome home. That's so fa- fascinating. That's so great. How is this even possible? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, what do your family think about all this happening? Do you feel pretty vindicated that you eventually <laughs> managed to make it work? <laughs> it's pretty good, but my, my family are happy. My
1: My mom especially, I believe she lived with me in that detention center mentally throughout all the shitty times she's a mother mothers are so connected to their kids not that fathers are not but mothers are special they they are the ones who carry you for nine fucking months in their stomach and they are the most the closest person to you for that first nine months and then even later on in your future years so they have a stronger connection with their kids no matter it's a boy or a girl and they she lived with me in that detention center for all those years even though she was not there physically she was there mentally so when she heard it was definitely a relief for her and she still talks about it that how she spent some nights crying in bed and waking up uh, feeling guilty and Uh, having so many horrifying feelings about her son being trapped on an island
0: that may never survive. So now that you're here, what what are your goals now? I feel like for the longest time, your objective was just to reach somewhere that you could permanently settle. Since you were a teenager, you've been on this journey To achieve that goal how did that feel and what comes next you
1: see i i I believe we were having this conversation during our brunch uh, as well it's i used to watch i remember this actor who committed suicide um forgot his name it was a very famous actor robin williams i think it was robin williams around 2014 ish yeah he's a comedian yeah he was a comedian robin williams when he committed suicide i was watching that on the news on menace island and i was like what's going on man like if there is one person on this planet to commit suicide it's the people on menace island Why would you commit suicide with that much of wealth and popularity that you have being famous? But then now I understand why. Um, One of the greatest uh, comedians as well that I really admire and I, I follow, listen to, and I watch a lot of his videos is Jim Carrey as well. I'm so happy he's Canadian. Americans pretended for so many years that he's American, but he's not in case you didn't know, Uh, Jim Carrey said that I wish everyone on this planet could become me and do everything that I did and then realize that it's not the end of it. And I could not comprehend that for a lot of years or, the other comedian that committed suicide. But until I came to Canada, because when you have a goal, especially, I would say, particularly, if you have a huge goal uh, in your life and you, you reach that goal, you achieve that huge success in your life, uh, something that you've been working for over a decade, and when you get it, that's when you experience a pause in your life. And that's exactly what happened to me when I, when I came here to Canada. I had insane and crazy, um, devastating times when I was on Manus Island. But I can guarantee you that the worst moments of my life, it was the second month of my arrival here the two weeks that I almost had a complete breakdown in Vancouver. I couldn't understand where it comes from. Yes, there was some stuff going on, but the hidden secret behind that was I had accomplished a goal and my brain was not registering anything. There was no dopamine coming to my brain. There was no... Nothing that I could look into and I had no plans. And that is when things get dangerous. When you have no goal, plan or any roadmap to feed your brain with dopamine and work your way towards a future, that's when you will hit a wall. That's when things become dangerous. No matter if you're the most successful billionaire on this planet or an ordinary citizen. And it often happens to billionaires or rich people, actors, actresses, because you reach to a point that you've experienced so much in your life that nothing seems interesting to you anymore and nothing feeds your brain anymore. And that's when you hit that wall. And I have been there, but I've learned that you need to manage them in a way that you always have something to look for and feed your brain with dopamine. Do you still communicate with any of the people on Manus Island? Yes, I am in contact with a lot of them. We've had four arrivals in Canada after I arrived. Um, the, fir- the second arrival was another man who actually smuggled himself outside of the country, Javiet, Elon The second person was my other buddy. He got sponsored. Um, The third one, um, also sponsored. Two of them, they came here. They are in Toronto. And then I have a huge group of friends down in the States. Um, During the Obama um, presidency, uh, America took well over 600 people from Manus Island. And
0: I have I have contact with a lot of them. What's the current situation on Manus Island?
1: Manus Island, like the detention center, Australia has gotten rid of all the evidence. It's flattened out the whole place. It's pretty scary, eh? They they gotten rid of all the evidence. They flattened the whole thing, and bushes and trees has grown over that detention center. So it's it's gone. It's gone. They they got rid of the evidence. When did that happen? Uh, they did it. Back in 2017, 18, 18, yeah, 18.
0: Right after you left. Right after
1: I left. Early 18, they kicked uh. people out of the place. They arrested them. They moved them to different facilities and they flattened the whole place. There is about 50 people in Papua New Guinea, less than 100. And there is about less than 100 in Nauru. The latest statistics that I have is about maybe 100 people on Nauru and Papua New Guinea. Most of them have gone to United States of America. Uh, Some came to Canada, some went to Australia, some went
0: to European countries. So pretty
1: much all over the place.
0: Do you think you'll ever try to visit Australia? I would
1: love to, but they were passing a motion in their parliament to forever... Ban us from entering Australia. So, doesn't matter what citizenship we are holding, they would um, ban us from entering Australia. Hmm. But I would love to visit Australia. Yeah. Uh, Australia is beautiful. And despite everything wanting to kill you, I believe it's worth visiting the place.
0: Given everything that happened, is there anything you'd like to say? to the people responsible for your treatment, who made the decisions for people like yourself to end up in those facilities?
1: I believe there is nothing more powerful than taking responsibilities. I would say it was me who made that decision to make this trip and end up there. My statement here would be, how would you feel if one day on this planet it was and other countries turn how you treated their people to give you protection. How would you expect treatment if you were forced and had to go and seek protection in that place? Because it's a very, it's a crazy planet that we live on. Half of this planet could get wiped one day or one third. And there could be only some countries that we could go and live on. Can you imagine if they were to say that all the way to Northern Dakota and Washington is going to freeze up like another ice age is going to happen? Canada is not livable anymore. What are we going to do? We're going to have to go somewhere that we can live, right? And then what if the only option for us was to go live in South America? How are they going to treat us? and Americans, considering the way that we've treated some of the South American countries. And this example could go on and on and
0: on. Given the evidence, the increasing evidence we have as to the impacts of climate change, I mean, that's why I bring it up. I feel like the refugee situation in the world is only going to increase in the, in the coming decades So that's part of the reason I ask is to figure out, you know, what would be a more sensible human facing policy that we could enact? Because we're going to need to figure out ways of dealing with it because like it or not, people are going to be moving all over the world at a very increasing rate. But either way, I'm very glad that we ended up with you,
1: Amir. Thanks buddy. I am proud and honored to be a Canadian.
0: I got my passport
1: two weeks ago and I also sworn in October 15th for the record. But then again, what is the future and Mother Nature, how Mother Nature is going to treat us? We don't know. Where are we going to end up? We don't know. At the end of the day, I know that we just need to be nice and share a little bit more. We need to stop being individualist and follow the path of me, myself, and I. There are other people also who live on this planet, and we need to be a little bit more generous. We can have less Amazon orders showing up at our door, but instead spend a couple more bucks and send it to a place that we can secure a safe drinking water for those people.
0: It's going to go a long way. Mm -hmm. Uh, A world-oriented around human benefit rather than market efficiency. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on, Amir. I really appreciate you.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: It was a great experience. Well, everybody, that is the conclusion of my conversation with Amir Taginia. I hope you enjoyed it. It's certainly been quite the journey getting to know him over these last couple months. And the recording of this episode actually happened about two days before I took my flight down to Mexico, and things have been pretty busy here. I just recorded an episode with anthropologist Dr. Kate Kingsbury, my former professor at the University of British Columbia, on Santa Muerte, the Mexican folk saint of death. So that's a pretty exciting episode that we just recorded out here my my very first fully international affair so uh, look out for that in the coming weeks and I've also got two more episodes lined up for right here in San Cristobal so I've uh, I've certainly booked myself for quite a bit of podcasting in the next couple days but like I said on pylon radio this is Recent graduation has allowed me the opportunity to work on this project a lot more, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. If you want to hear more from me, you can check out my other project, Pylon Radio, which plays every Thursday on Vancouver Co-op Radio 100.5 FM. If you want to follow me on social media, you can check out the Elsewhere podcast on Facebook. I'm doing my very best to keep it updated Whenever I can. But if you want some more frequent updates, some more personal updates from me, you'd be best advised to follow my Instagram that is at Eastvan2Elsewhere. If you want to follow Amir Teginia, you can do that on his Twitter that is Guinea Amir. If you want the spelling of that, I will leave it on the landing page to this episode at eastvan2elsewhere.com. Thanks very much for listening. This show would mean absolutely nothing if it weren't for the ears on the other end, hearing about these stories. So if you've made it this far, just know that I really appreciate it. And if you do enjoy the content that you've heard on the Elsewhere podcast, why don't you go ahead and leave us a couple of gold stars, a couple of reviews on whatever podcatcher you listen to us on. That really is the best way of us gaining ground in the competitive gladiator pit that is modern podcasting. So, go ahead, give us a fighting edge, drop us some stars. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, that's all I have time for today. Take care of yourself, and we'll talk soon.